Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that all that you have proclaimed in your word is true. And though there are prophecies that seem from our perspective to be slow in being fulfilled, you are bringing them about at just the right time. So Father, help us today to rejoice in those prophecies that have been fulfilled. Jesus has come. He has become our Savior. And help us to rejoice in the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. Father, give us understanding this morning. Help us to love you, to love your word, to love one another. Grow us and change us as we go through this passage. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you remember the good old days? There's a fantastic quote from the final episode of a TV show. It goes like this. I wish there was a way to know that you were in the good old days before you've actually left them. Isn't that a great quote? I mean, it doesn't reach biblical proportions, but it's a pretty good quote. Wouldn't it be nice to know that you were in the good old days? before you've left them. See, we have a tendency to look at the past through rose-colored glasses, to remember how life was better when it was simpler. Life was easier before the cell phone. Yes and no. I remember going home from a, a New Year's Eve party with my parents. We, we would just get gathered together with a couple of their friends and on the way home, it was really snowy. It was slick. We were only going about 20 miles, but you and I both know it doesn't take very many miles to get really stuck, and we got really stuck. There was no simple fix to that. Go find someone who, first of all, was home and awake and would answer the door and had a tractor or a truck and a chain to pull us out. I remember... Uh, oftentimes, as we would leave uh, my parents' friends late at night to go home, uh, that they would say, now give me a call when you get home. And if this was long distance, do you remember that? Oh my goodness. This was long distance, and so they'd say, we'll just call and let it ring twice and then hang up, because they didn't want to pay for the call, but they wanted to know that they were okay. So was life better before cell phones? <laughs> you could build the case either way, I suppose. We, we have a tendency to look at the past with rose-colored glasses or, or to look to the future with an unreasonable optimism. 2023 was rough. 2024 is going to be great. Uh, maybe. I can't guarantee that. So what happens is we get so enamored either with the past or with the future that we forget to live now. We get discouraged in the now because we fear that the good days are behind us, the, the good old days. We fear that a better future will not arrive. Some of you have suffered greatly in 2023 experienced profound pain, loss, ongoing struggles. 
hear the word of the Lord this morning. The message from the word of God is this, the best is yet to come. The good old days are not behind us. Whatever we might look to the past and say, that was great, it's not as good as what is to come. This truth is proven from the past through God's working, and it spurs joy in us now as we look to the future. Psalm 98 has all of this in it. It's a very uplifting psalm. It it recounts the joys of the past, looks forward to the fulfillment of the joyful promises of the future, and expresses joy in worship now. So let's see these three things happening. Verses 1 through 3 starts in the past. So we start out with a joyful remembrance. We read of a a past deliverance. See all this past tense. The Lord has has worked salvation. He has made known his salvation. Uh, all, All these past tense verbs. Scholars are not completely sure of the exact historical setting of what's going on in the people of Israel as as Psalm 98 is remembering. It's it's ambiguous. It's not completely clear, and I believe that was probably on purpose so that we would not only see the historical uh, event that was happening here, but that we would see the eschatological event. That's a big word. I'm sorry. Not sorry. I used it. Eschatology is end times, the, the future events, the, that final, the, those final things that God will, will bring about to make all things new, all things right in the world. So we're not 100% sure of the historical setting of the psalm, but many, most, I believe, it was written after the exile to Babylon. So much of prophecy in the Old Testament was Uh, was to Israel, Israel, you are sinning, and God is going to bring about judgment by way of a nation taking you out of the land. You remember that? God foretold through various prophets that because of their continuous sin as a nation, because they would not follow the law, and and specifically, it was the laws of the Sabbath. Remember, the, the Israelites were commanded to, uh, to work the land of Israel, God's, God's land, Work it for six years, and on the seventh year, don't. Any of you willing to just not do your job for a year and trust the Lord to provide? Well, they didn't either, and they had to pay for it. They went into Babylon. God used an evil nation to invade them, take them into captivity, and God told them that you're going to be in captivity for 70 years, One year for each of those Sabbath years that they missed. Because the land needed its rest. So Babylon invaded Israel, took them captive for 70 years, and now God has seen fit for the people to return to the land. Remember Nehemiah? They go back and they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And and, uh, sure enough, Over time, the people of Israel are back in their land. God often used real, current events to serve as prophecy for future, greater events. So that's what's happening in this psalm. This psalm is talking about some event that happened that God had rescued the nation of Israel. And honestly, he did it so many times it could have referred to any number of events. But he's using these real current events to serve as a prophecy, a picture of a future 
greater event. So as we go through the psalm, there's this immediate context, but there's also the, the prophesied messianic context. So I'm going to reread verses 1 through 3. I want you to notice the repetition of the word salvation. Uh, if you're following along, you might have another word. It might be victory or something like that. Same concept. Just pay attention to the repetition. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm. By the way, when he talks about his right hand, that's talking about his strength. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Each verse mentions God's salvation. Do you see how these verses make perfect sense in light of national Israel after the exile? How they would rejoice in God freeing them from their captive, their captors. But you also see how this also makes perfect sense with Messiah being Savior. It's true that the political rescue of Israel was good news. It was great. They got to get back to their land that God had promised, that God had given them. But as great as that was, the, the spiritual and eternal rescue, that salvation that God has, has now, in, from our perspective in the past, done through Jesus Christ, that spiritual salvation is far greater than any political rescue. In verse 1, we see the power for salvation. As the Israelites praised the Lord for deliverance from their political enemies, we rejoice in the greater messianic fulfillment found in Jesus. Pray for the peace of Israel now. Pray more for the salvation of Israel. Political peace is great. Eternal peace is greater. In verse 2, we see the proclamation of his salvation. Why is it important that we as God's people keep reading and studying and meditating on and memorizing the Bible? Why is that important? Why are these concepts just littered all through, all through Scripture of people of, of God wanting to know and commit to memory the word of God, why is that important? Because that's how we know God. Experiencing God isn't something that happens when you just empty your mind of all thoughts or, or go to some, some great natural national park. Go climb a mountain and say, I've experienced God. Well, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, perhaps you had a good communion with God as you were praying, Lord, help me not fall off this mountain. But the reality is, the only way that we know God is through his word. Creation reveals that there is a God, but it's his word that gives us the details. The Bible is how we know God. The Bible is how we know that we have a problem and we need to be rescued. We need to be saved. The Bible is how we know of his salvation. And the Lord has not kept his salvation hidden. Verse 2, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has not kept it hidden. He has recorded it for us 
in a written language that has been copied over and over again, that has been preserved, that has been translated, has been distributed. Distributed? Sorry. To the tune of like five billion copies sold? No other book even comes close, at least according to Wikipedia. Five billion for the Bible, the, the number two was like 100 million something, 120 million. That's not even close. Now granted, we're talking about copies of scripture over time. Wouldn't it be great if there were five billion copies of the word of God circulating right now? The problem is so many believers have 30 or 40 by themselves. The Word of God is important. It's how we know of our rescuer, of our need to be rescued, and how to be rescued. In verse 3, we see the promise of his salvation. He, uh, he has remembered his steadfast love and his faithfulness. In ancient days, God promised that he was going to remain faithful to Israel, and he did just that. So no, it is not surprising that God would bring about salvation. It's not surprising that God would rescue his people from their captors. It's not surprising that God would send the perfect salvation for us. Because he keeps his promises. In fact, God would not be God if he did not keep his promises. God wants us to rejoice in his salvation because he has kept his promises. It's our first application. Rejoice because his word is true. So we have a joyful remembrance in verses 1 through 3. In verses 4 through 6, we have a joyful worship. So whereas 1 through 3 was past tense, verses 4 through 6 is present tense. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Do you hear the command there? It's not, if you're feeling it, go ahead and sing along. No. Make a joyful noise to, to Jehovah, to Yahweh, everyone. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Verse 4 is all about participation. Participation with the voice in praising God. Verses 5 and 6, sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. These three verses give us a vivid description of praise. This is not an exhaustive description, an exhaustive list. There are ways that we express our devotion and worship to God that look very different than what we see in Psalm 98. For instance, there are times when we have been caught up in sin, we recognize it, and we're confessing it to God, and that's a form of worship that looks very different than what we see in Psalm 98. Still very much worship. There are times of deep sorrow when we worship the Lord through lament recognizing how broken the world is, how broken our life is, how things aren't right and won't be right until God makes everything new. But we still worship him in that. That looks very different than what we see in Psalm 98. So this is not an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive description of worship. 
The setting for worship is for the way he has rescued us by keeping his promise. And that indeed deserves a vibrant strain of praise. I think our first song this morning was Joy to the World. And I wanted to sing a little more exuberantly than I could, but my voice just didn't like those first high notes. Okay, that's a thing. But it doesn't mean we don't put our energy into it. Verse 4 here is a reminiscent of various other calls to worship found in the Psalms. Here's Psalm 66, verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Psalm 81, 1. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Psalm 95, 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. And perhaps most famously, Psalm 101. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. God's people are made to sing praises. We are designed to vocalize our praise through song. Whether you can carry a tune in a bucket or not is not the point. Praise the Lord with your voice. Sing. Sing regardless of whether you sing like a canary or squawk like a crow. It doesn't matter. Sing because God makes promises and he keeps promises. Your participation in praise is far more important than your skill. Yet as we continue in the passage... God does not disparage or scorn skill. We're not suggesting that we should just do whatever we want. I appreciate our musicians. They came to a song as they were rehearsing this morning and were like, we're not in the right keys. (laughs) They figured it out, they fixed it, and it went really well, didn't it? None of you noticed because they got it right. Because we want skill. When it comes to vocalizing our praise as the peoples, who cares what you sound like? Sing. Verse 5. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre. Now, we don't use lyres, and it is terribly ironic that that word sounds like something else that means completely something different. (laughs) The instrument, the lyre, looks like a, a, a small harp. Uh, It would be what David played when he was soothing King Saul's um, agitated heart. He would play uh, the lyre. So it would be a a plucked stringed instrument. Um, So verse 5 talks about the lyre. Verse 6 talks about the trumpet and the horn. The lyre of verse 5 is not a particularly loud instrument. A little open-stringed instrument is not going to be loud. We, we have guitars which have that, uh, that big wooden chamber to echo and make it louder. Imagine a guitar without that. It'd be much like an electric guitar but not plugged in. Not a lot of sound, but a lovely melody can be made, and that's, uh, that's what the psalmist is talking about here. The highlight of verse 5 really is about skill and beauty. No one walks up to a harp big or small, and can just immediately be good at playing it. It does not work. There is no good melody coming from a stringed instrument that is done by someone who doesn't know what they're doing. 
You have to learn. There has to be skill. Beautiful melody is the right response of praise to the one who invented beauty. And so, yes, we sing, we sing joyfully and vigorously as God's people, but we also need skill. We also want skill as part of it. And so the the skilled instruments are included in verse 5. Verse 6, we have brass instruments. Brass instruments are the opposite. I know, you brass players, you can play smooth and quietly, but only if you're really good. My four-year-old pulls out the trumpet every once in a while and plays some notes. They are not quiet. And that's the imagery here, not not of a four-year-old. The imagery here is of bombastity, of energy, praise with volume and, and energy, more than what you would get from the little stringed lyre. Taken all together, verses four, five, and six, we have a case for musical praise that prioritizes people singing, and has done so with variety, lightly, like the stringed lyre, and boldly, like the brass. God wants us to rejoice in his salvation with music. Music connects us in a way that just verbalizing something doesn't. And whether you can understand all the ins and outs of the emotional connection because of of how much more of your body is being used by singing, whether you understand any of that or not is not relevant. You know by experience that when you sing something, it's greater than if you just spoke something. And God wants us to rejoice in his salvation through music. Verses 1 through 3 were the joyful remembrance, and we had joyful worship in the present Verses 7 through 9 is a joyful anticipation of the future. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and all who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In these verses, we have a personification of nature. Personification is a a grammatical term, specifically a poetic term. That means we're giving uh, qualities of a person to something that doesn't have it. Do do rivers actually have hands to clap? No. Okay. What we're seeing here is that nature rejoices. Nature will be rejoicing at the future lifting of the curse that it is now under. Right now, all nature groans under the curse. This is from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Paul is making the case that just as we believers in Christ are looking forward to that future fulfillment when God will remove the sin nature from us. We will no longer be capable of sinning. We will no longer be surrounded by sin. We will be in perfect bodies, not imperfect. We will be in perfect bodies. Amen. No one's got a bad back this morning. We groan for that new creation. Creation groans for it as well. The fulfillment that Psalm 98 looks forward to 
shows the creation rejoicing. The sea roars along with all the sea creatures. The rivers and hills clap and sing. The Psalms are songs. Psalms, Psalms are songs, which are poems. This is poetic speak. But the picture is not hard to understand. Just as the entry of sin into the world was sudden and devastating, subjecting all of creation to the curse of sin, so the restoration of all things will be just as profound and complete. But it's not happening just yet, is it? The end of Psalm 98 is not just looking forward to the next eschatological event, the next event on the timeline in, of end times. Though there are various characteristics prophesied about the general state of the world before Christ returns, about how sinful the world will be, how there will be wars and rumors of wars, the next specific event as we understand scripture is the removal of the church as God's primary people on earth. He's going to take the church out and he's going to start working with, the, with Israel again. That's from the book of Daniel. He prophesied 77s or 70 weeks. We understand that those 77s are 70 periods of seven years. And at the end of the 69th seven, he said that the Messiah would be cut off. And sure enough, 483 years, I did the math, and I looked up the history, 483 years after the prophecy, Jesus was crucified. That leaves one set of seven after that last set of seven years takes place, which is yet future, Jesus will set up his kingdom on earth, reigning for a thousand years. And only after that, after the millennial reign of Christ and the final battle and destruction of the earth, all those honestly difficult under, to understand passages of the book of Revelation, when that's all done, then will come to pass what we're talking about in these last few verses of Psalm 98. So, at least a thousand seven years from now, all right? Only then will the curse of sin be lifted. So no, the complete fulfillment of this psalm is not happening soon as you and I count soon. But it will surely take place. There's a stanza of joy to the world that we did not sing before. We'll sing it after the sermon. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. Far as, far as, far as the curse is found. Where is the curse found? The whole universe is cursed by sin. And these last three verses of Psalm 98 are looking to that day when it will all be reversed. When God will have made all things new. God wants us to rejoice in his salvation for he will keep all of his promises. Amen. He has kept his promises in the past. He is worthy of our praise and worship today and he will keep all of his promises. 2023 is quickly done. Twelve and a half hours and a minute, according to that clock. Today is a good day to recount the goodness of God in your life. To look back on the year and how God has sustained you, blessed you, carried you through struggles, 
Today is a good day to praise him for who he is and all he has done. And today is a good day to look forward to the complete and perfect fulfillment of all the promises he has made. Would you pray with me? O Lord our God, you have promised a great and eternal future for all who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior who paid for their sins. Some of the descriptions of that good and perfect life just seem too good to be true in our minds. But Lord, you are faithful. You were faithful to Israel throughout the past. And the promises you've made to them, you've kept. Because you are faithful, because you are all-powerful and able to do all that you desire, we know that the promises that, that are still open, that are, that are not yet fulfilled, you will keep to the very word. And though some of them are a little bit blurry, we're not necessarily 100% sure exactly how you're going to bring that to pass. We know that there will come a day where we'll look back on it and go, ah, you did exactly what you said. Thank you for being a God who is trustworthy in, in all these ways. Help us to trust you. Help us to rely on you for our day-to-day -day needs as well as our eternal ones. Help us to rely on you when, when life is easy and when life is hard. Help us to live for you each and every day of 2024 that you give us so that in a year's time we can look back and recount once more your faithfulness. We love you. We thank you for all that, that you are and all that you do. In Jesus' name.